Well, good morning. Uh, good morning. Welcome you all this morning. We're going to uh, this will be our be our uh, first uh, our introduction to the uh, to the book of First John. We're going to go through the first the three three letters of John, first, second, and third John, um, and uh, uh, we're we'll begin this morning. I've, I've kind of put a, an introduction together so that we can kind of have a, a little bit of understanding of the background of the book, the author of the book, uh, the uh, uh, the circumstances surrounding its writings, some of the things that prompted its writing, those kinds of things, and some of the some of the features that uh, that uh, uh, that that permeate this book. Understanding that helps us to understand what John was saying when he said it, and how the original hearers understood it when it was said to them. Because some of the things he said, we we quote them today, and they really don't have quite the impact they should have on us if we understand what was going on when John wrote it. So uh, I, I think it's kind of important that we get a uh, somewhat of a grip on what the world was like in about 80, about 90 AD when John wrote this book. So that's that's where we're going to be going this morning. And then next week we'll, we'll hit John 1, 1 through 4. And, uh, uh, and then we'll proceed pretty much paragraph by paragraph through the book as 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 we as we as we go through it. So, let's just take a moment and uh, open in prayer if, if we could this morning. Father God, we thank you as we as we gather this morning. We th- we thank you for this this group of people who you have called by your name that you have brought together in this place. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, that we can come and that we can study together under the guidance of your Holy Spirit, who is our who is our teacher, that he would lead us and guide us in all truth, as you've promised that he would. And Father, we just ask that uh, as we as we delve into this book, you would give us understanding, you would give us insight, that it would uh, prompt our sanctification even further, that we would be drawn closer to you, that in every way possible we would glorify your name and we would we would give you the thanks and the praise for all of it and we thank you this morning now in the name of our lord jesus christ amen so um I, I kind of jumped into this writing this this out, and normally what you do when you do one of these introductions is you give the history of the author, you know, who he is, where he came from, where he was born. And I didn't do that in the beginning because I was thinking to myself, oh, everybody knows who John is. And I thought, well, no, that was stupid. So we are going to, before we get to the, before we get to the, before we get to the, uh, before we get to the typed text, just a little bit of the background of who John, who John is. Uh, John is... Uh, uh, <clears throat> he's the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, and his mother's name was Salome, Mark, uh, Mark 15, uh, 40. Um, incidentally, just kind of, you can't prove this absolutely, but from John nineteen twenty five, it may be that Salome is the sister of Mary, the mother of Christ. If so, John and Jesus were cousins physically, uh, but you can't absolutely prove that. But uh, but there's a, a little bit of a hint that that may be the case. Um, at, at any rate, uh, he was a very successful fisherman. Mark one twenty tells us that he and his brother James, uh, along with their father, I think he was probably semi-retired or something. But at any rate, uh, uh, the two of them uh, uh, were fishermen. And they owned their own boats, and they had employees, uh, and so they were successful fishermen in the Sea of Galilee. That's the region in which they lived. And... um 
you know, if you think about that, I, I, I don't know about you, but, you know, you see pictures of, of Jesus that, that, uh, that were probably painted in the Middle Ages, and you see pictures of, of, the, of the apostles that were probably painted in the Middle Ages, and they're all these very soft-looking, tender people with, looks like they just went to the hairdresser, and, and all this kind of stuff. These guys were fishermen. They didn't sit on the bank with a fishing pole. They were out in the lake with nets, heavy rope nets, and they pulled those things in. These were strong, tough, rugged guys who spent their day in the sun. So kind of get that picture of who these guys are. They're not a bunch of mamby-pambies. These were pretty tough guys, you know, is is the reality. Uh, And they were hard guys. John, according to First John, or excuse me, John, uh, uh, what, John one thirty five through thirty four was a, was originally a disciple of John the Baptist. Uh, when Jesus came to John the Baptist and pointed, and John the Baptist pointed out Jesus, John immediately followed Jesus. John 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 one thirty seven. He did go back to fishing for a little while, but eventually came back with Jesus and and uh, and con- and continued with him thereon. He became part of the inner circle. He was the three closest apostles with Jesus, if you will. Uh, John, his brother James, and Peter. Uh, these were the guys that uh, uh, that were at the transfiguration. These are the guys who saw the glory, <laughs> the divine glory of Jesus. Breakthrough. Uh, they witnessed that, uh, so they were. They, he was. He was a witness to that. He was one of. The, he was the apostle that stood at the crucifixion. He was there, and from the cross, Jesus looked to John, and 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 uh, gave uh, <clears throat> gave. Uh, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. Anyway, but he gave the gave John the responsibility of his widowed mother, which in. Israel, that was an important thing. Widows were probably the worst. A widow who had no sons and who had no uh, uh, other means of income was in the worst condition anyone could be in. And John made sure, or excuse me, Jesus made sure that that Mary was cared for by entrusting her to John. Uh, John continued to live in Palestine. He was a leader, and he was obviously a leader throughout the book of Acts. He's, he's known as a leader in the Jerusalem church, which would be pretty obvious, really. Uh, he was one of the apostles, and, and, and he stayed in Jerusalem. He stayed in Jerusalem until about 60 A.D., when uh, Arrhenius tells us that he, uh, he moved to uh, Ephesus, where he lived his remaining years until he was exiled to Patmos around about 95 A.D., maybe 96, somewhere somewhere in there anyway before 98 uh, but at any rate that's that's uh, that's that's uh, that's kind of John's history uh, and he died probably just slightly before the turn of the century so he he uh, lived a while it's kind of interesting too to note that uh, when Peter uh, had his encounter with the resurrected Christ after after his betrayal and and uh, and uh, and Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Well, I did in the wrong order. But anyway, uh, to, to, to minister to his flock and uh, then gave him the instructions on what his death would be. Uh, the first thing Peter did was deflect. He looked at John and said, what about him? And Jesus told him, what does it matter if he stays alive until I come again? 
Well, you know, in a real sense, John did, because he, he was the guy who was left to write the book of Revelation. He saw the end of history. So at any rate, at any rate, John, this is John. This is who this guy is. Uh, he, is uh, uh, he is a staunch disciple of Jesus Christ, an absolute apostle who, who wrote for us the gospel, which he wrote in about 80 A.D., uh, and then he wrote these books around around 90 A.D. and the Book of Revelation, probably about 90, somewhere, probably 95, somewhere between 94 and 96. Most most uh, historians put it. So that's that's uh, that's 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 John. That's who he was as an individual. As we come to his letter, First John, it has a very distinctive note. The, probably one of the first things you note about it, he doesn't identify himself. He doesn't, this isn't one of those, this isn't one of those to the churches of Asia Minor, which is incidentally who he's writing to, probably the same seven churches that he lists in, in the first two chapters of Revelation, or the sec, second and third chapter of Revelation. Uh, those, those churches in that area, that's where, the, that's where this letter would have gone, because uh, that's where he was and uh, uh, <clears throat> but he doesn't he doesn't identify himself like Paul would have you know to the churches of Asia Minor from the Apostle John or from John an Apostle of Jesus Christ or something like that. he doesn't do that he, he doesn't even say who he is they would have known obviously he was there with them so they would have known who he was but he doesn't identify himself the only the only other book where that happens is Hebrews uh, the rest of all the letters all the letters are identified by by the author, uh, but here he doesn't do that. He he uh, he doesn't identify himself, but the but the authorship of this book was never in question in the early church. It really um, uh, John, the beloved apostle, was known to all the early church fathers of the author. The letter, as you go through it, it's going to show the heart of a pastor, uh, probably uh, indicating that uh, that he was a. A older man, uh, because he refers to them quite often through the book as little children, my little children, which I've noticed as I've gotten older that uh, people not a whole lot younger than me are kids. <laughs> so at any rate, <laughs> you know, we, we talk about talk about our sons as kids. They're in the, the youngest ones are in their mid 30s. I mean, you know, come on. But uh, they're still kids to us. But that's the way it is. But that's that's kind of the kind of the picture of this. He talks to them as they're, 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 uh, of as little children. And he also calls them he calls them beloved ones in the faith. In other words, he's writing to believers. Uh, this is this is a, a letter to encourage and to uplift and to do some correction uh, among among believers is 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 the idea behind this book, and within the book, John is going to give, and we'll get to those a little later. He's going to give ten purposes. He tells you why he wrote this book ten times. He's going to give ten purposes for why he wrote this why he wrote this book. Four of those purposes are going to be be um, be stressed with the words, "I am writing to you these things so," and then he goes on. Why? But he gives he gives four of these examples, uh, and these these themes pretty much revolve around or, or these 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 uh, purposes revolve around the themes of love, obedience, assurance, and faith. Those are the things he's those are his those are his marks that he he wants to drive home as as he talks to as he uh, writes to these believers in in Asia Minor.
First uh, John and Hebrews, like I said, are the only two letters that where the author is not identified. However, First John has continually been seen by written written by the apostle John from the first century A.D. from right after its writing uh, until the 18th century schools of criticism uh, that was was the only time any questioning of the authorship was ever ever. Uh, ever, ever emerged. Just for those of you who are not familiar with the schools of higher criticism, these are schools that developed in Europe, primarily Germany, in the uh, the 18th century, primarily the mid-1700s and and on into the 1800s and into the early 1900s even. Uh, These these schools, basically, I like to classify the the guys who were part of the higher critic schools as unregenerate theologians. Uh, They talked a lot about theology, but they knew nothing of the theo of theology. And, and, uh, uh, and they basically questioned everything. They late-dated every book. They tried to put them in different centuries. They tried to put them sometimes three, four hundred years later, in the sense of the Old Testament, sometimes six hundred years later. But uh, uh, they, uh, they basically, um, you may have heard of the documentary theory and, and Vilhausen, who, who, who per- presented that over the Pentateuch, who basically, basically believed it was totally anti-Semitic, incidentally, those guys. Uh, but they, he, he uh, for example, one of, one of the things he said was that the Hebrews didn't have a written language, so they couldn't, so they couldn't have written, Moses couldn't have written, uh, uh, written those books. You know, the fact of the matter is Moses was more highly educated than Wilhausen. So, you know, uh, uh, but, uh, but that being the being beside the point. But that's that's the schools of higher criticism. They, these were non-believers trying to tell you what to believe about the Bible. And and they and they didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. The inspired word of God uh, there from them came guys like Boltmann, who 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 his his deal was the demythalization of the Bible. In other words, anything supernatural needed to be taken out. Well, there's not much left after you do that because it's a supernatural book. Uh, but that's that's who the school of higher criticism is. So uh, when I was in seminary, I would uh, if I had to write a paper, I would go find these guys first. And then I knew everything I had to argue against. You know, I'd list them out and make sure make sure I covered all the points. <laughs> but uh, but uh, that's who they are. And there's no question about John until them. In fact, uh, it, it is the oldest known the oldest known New Testament document, which is P52. I had that on a test one time uh, contains first John. Uh, and this document was written within 25 years of John's life. That's the oldest attested to uh, document, and it's a piece of First John. It's not a big piece, but it is a piece of First John. And, and like I said, all the church fathers uh, attributed this book to John. Pa- Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, incidentally, knew him personally, uh, studied under him. Uh, he, he attributes this book uh, to, to the First John to John. Arrhenius, who was Polycarp's student, he attributes the book uh, to to to, uh, uh, to John, and and then it, it, you can go through. There's Pappus, Justin, Bar- uh, Barbaeus, uh, Hermes, uh, Clement of Rome, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, um, Origen, 
he frequently cited the the epistle and, and attributed it to Joan. Eusebius, the Council of Hippo, the Council of Carthage, all acknowledged all acknowledged um, uh, John. So from the first century through the fourth century, uh, there's just this history of the early church fathers until we get into the Catholic age. But but the Catholics don't. Dis- disown it either, but but nevertheless, uh, the early church fathers before before uh, uh, the world was Christianized by Constantine allegedly. Uh, so at any rate, that's that's kind of the that's kind of the picture of this book. This book was never questioned; it, it was never in dispute. Uh, the early church recognized the book, and it's in, and it's also supported by the internal evidence that we find in the book as we as we get into it. In First John and in the Gospel, they're both quite similar. The language is similar. Uh, the phraseology is similar. Uh, a lot of of, of event. There's a lot of things that that coincide with one another. Um, <clears throat> they're similar in the contrast that they present. Uh, incidentally, John is a black and white guy. You know, it's this way or this way. There's no middle ground. There's no gray with John. Um, now, you, you have to temper that as you go through because, uh, uh, because there is that room for the progressive sanctification. But John doesn't, he just says, you either are or you aren't. That's, that's what he says as you go through it. It's very cut. He, he, he cuts the lines very tight, which is not a bad thing. Uh, for example, he, he, and he offers no third option. Like I said, there is no, there is no gray areas with John. He, he's, he's, it's either lightness or it's darkness. It's life or it's death. It's truth or a lie. It's love, a love of the Father or a love of the world. It's love or hate. It's no God or no, don't know God. Being a child of God or being a child of the devil. There's no middle ground in, in any of that. Uh, it's having eternal life or not having eternal life. That's pretty much the way John. Uh, that's pretty much the way John cuts everything as 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 we as we proceed through this book. First John one through three demonstrates that the writer was an eyewitness of the entire ministry of Christ, and that he was an apostle, and he uh, and he was known by his readers. We'll just look at that. The, the next week we'll we'll digest this one, but he says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes and what we have beheld and touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the life was manifest and we have seen it and bear witness and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the father and was manifest to us. What we have seen and what we have heard, we proclaim uh, to you also so that you may also have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship was with, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This is, this is John. This, now take this and go back to the Gospel of John, and in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, verses 14 and 15 uh, specifically, and it basically says the same thing. It basically, basically is the same, the same idea. Uh, they have many, for example, and they do have many words and phrases that are uh, that are that are common to them, but are not used anywhere else in the New Testament. You won't find them. They were, they're unique to John. Uh, they're unique to his expression, if you will. And I've I've listed a few of those. <coughs> the expression "one and only Son" occurs in John one uh, fourteen and fifteen. Uh, there's a variant reading that 
puts it in a couple of different ways. It's also in John 3.16 and also here in 1 John 4.9. The word paraclete is, is used throughout throughout John's gospel. It's also used here, here in uh, 1 John uh, 2.1. Uh, despite the author not being named within the epistle, the overwhelming testimony of the early church fathers coupled with the internal evidence that comes from the author himself uh, who was indeed a recognized authority. You can't write John 1, 1 through 3 to a bunch of people who know you and not have authority. I mean, they're going to call you out right now, you know. The fact, che- the fact checkers are going to post on social media right away. You know, what, that's, that's what's going to happen. Uh, so the, he, was, he was known, he was an authority figure in the early church, and he was an authority figure in the churches in, in, uh, in Asia Minor. It has a similar, uh, it has a similar grammar, uh, style, vocabulary, and quite frankly, it's just clear that John the Apostle is the author of, of this book. The date of the writing was in John's later years, as we've already suggested. Uh, he was living in Ephesus, but and it was and and the, these three books were written: First John, Second John, and Third John, between ninety and ninety-five A.D. Arrhenius writes that John lived his senior years in Ephesus, where he served as a general overseer of the area's churches. Uh, given the testimony of the early church placing John in Ephesus during this period, uh, the heresy that is going to be confronted in this book is a form of what is called Gnostic, or excuse me, insepit Gnosticism, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. And the lack of any in, uh, any uh, any mention of the persecution under uh, under Emperor Dominion in 95 A.D. places the book written before 95. So probably around 90 A.D. is when the writing of this took place. Incidentally, uh, 95 A.D. is when John got his vacation trip to the island in Patmos. So. Uh, that's 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 pretty much the idea here. John's purpose in writing uh, this letter was to counteract the anti-Christian teaching that was infecting the assemblies, which had resulted in some withdrawing from the churches, 2, 8, and 9. Uh, their heresy centered on the person of Christ. They denied that Jesus was the Christ, uh, chapter 2, verses 22, chapter 5, verse 1, and that the Son of God was incarnate, uh, chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. The point of their teaching was to die, to die the, to, excuse me, to deny uh, the two, uh, the union of the two natures, the divine and the human, into one person, which theologically is called the hyperstatic union. I gave you a theological definition of it at the end of the paper, if you want to get into that basically means that Jesus was both man and God, totally 100% man, 100% man, and the two did not mingle. And he remains that way. That's that's what that, uh, that's kind of the uh, short answer to what that means. At the time of John's writing, uh, that would become a major, uh, at the time of John's writing, what would become a major heresy in the second century, basically, of Gnosticism, uh, that comes from Gnosis, which means knowledge, had already found inroads into the church, and the, and, and the, and the heresy had developed in two forms. We're going to talk about this for a little bit, because this is important to this book. Incidentally, Gnosticism didn't go away in the second century. It's still around today. Uh, it's, it's called Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, it's in fact I think Mormonism would probably fall into this camp certainly Christian scientists fall into this camp the more 
ones we cults we see in America. There's a whole bunch of others as well. There are some. Well, the Apostolic Church is or not. Excuse me. Well, the not the Apostolic Church. The Orthodox Church's doctrinal statement would agree with ours on the hyperstatic union. There are some branches of it that don't. Uh, that they move away from it. They usually deny the humanity. Sometimes they deny the deity, one or the other. They deny, no, they deny one or the other. And this, this, whole, this whole doctrine, this whole idea, I'm going to skip for just a minute. Uh, the teachings, the whole teaching was, great, uh, was rooted in Greek philosophy, primarily Plato. And, and, and it was that of dualism, which basically, basically saw that matter, in other words, your body, was evil. It was evil. And therefore, it didn't matter. Matter didn't matter. But anyway, uh, but, any, but at any rate, it was, it, was, it was irrelevant. What was important was the spirit, because the spirit was what related to their sense of God's, and, and it was the spirit that was good. So what you did in the body, in some forms... This this became this became license, you know. What you did in the body was was irrelevant to the spirit. The other form that this took was was you had to punish the physical to embrace the the uh, uh, the spiritual. Uh, that's that's kind of a short answer to to um, to the dualism view of Gnosticism within the church of course it re- it revolved around the person of Jesus Christ because to the Gnostic it was unthinkable that God could take on human flesh that spirit could intermingle with human flesh that was the unthinkable thing to these to these folks, and and you had two forms of it that were developing uh, uh, the dialectic, uh, which came from uh, dokol, uh, which means to seem to be. It's a Greek verb, and this teaching was that that basically Christ appeared to be a man but was not. That he he actually he had no physical or material body. Basically, he was a theopony or a Christopony, which basically means he was an appearance of deity. In other words, what it means is he was a prolonged ghost, is what it comes down to. Uh, that there was this non-entity that looked like an entity wandering around. That someone that kind of looked like a man, but wasn't. Uh, that it wasn't. That was, that was the one form. The one that was more, more readily taken on uh, was Sinterus, who was an individual. Uh, and now he, Sinterus, uh, 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 according to Arrhenius, came on the scene about 88 AD. He was known to John. He was in the same area. He was in Asia Minor. Uh, he's mentioned in a, the apophical epistle of the apostles, uh, where he is listed with Simon Magnumus as a false apostle, uh, and uh, uh, and and it, and it goes on to uh, whom it is written that no man should cleave with them. In other words, these are people to stay away from. Was was what what they were saying in there? He was Jewish by by ethnicity. Uh, he was educated in Alexandria, and he was active in Asia Minor. <clears throat> he held to the belief that that the world was not created by God, but rather that it was created by powers separate from God. 
part of the Gnostic teaching, well, part of the Greek teaching that bled over into Gnosticism, was that the gods couldn't touch the, the physical. So they had this series of emanations that evolved from them, and they moved down and down and down until they got to where other things were created. That's kind of the idea. And and in their view, in the Gnostic view, as applied to Christianity, Christ was just one of those, one of those emanations. Uh, that was kind of the view that went on there. Uh, the, the idea of the teaching here with Centrist was he taught that, that, uh, that the spirit of the divine Christ had descended upon and possessed a guy named Jesus. And it came upon him at his baptism with John, the Baptist, and it left at the crucifixion. Now, it left before he died at the crucifixion. These are important issues here. You know, because God couldn't die. That was the point uh, that he was making there. But that this man, Jesus, was a natural-born child of Joseph and Mary. That was, that was the teaching. This is the Gnostic teaching. And, and uh, like I said, it, this is still prevalent. In it, it, what happens is it mutates into different forms. No, there's really no, I don't think there's really any new heresies. They're just old ones that's been repackaged. You know, they've, they've taken on a little different tone, a little different nature, a little different wording, but it's the same stuff that came up in the early centuries. This one is the same, the same idea. This is, this is when, when, when uh, uh, Jehovah Witnesses come to your door and tell you that Jesus is the archangel, uh, Michael. You know, that's who they're going to tell you is. Uh, they're, you know... They have a little problem, though, when you go to Hebrews and say, to which of his angels at any time did he say? <laughs> you know, they, but, but nevertheless, that's, that's the idea here. That's the idea here. Basically, the idea of Gnosticism was there's no way Jesus could be both man and God. Now, you understand the implication of that, don't you? The implication of that is there is no salvation because he had to be both. He couldn't pay the price for your sin without being both man and God. Because only God could pay that price. But it had to be paid in blood. So he had to be both. And you see, by separating this out, there is no salvation in Gnostic thinking. It can't exist. Uh, ultimately, that's, that's the bottom line here. This is why it was such a bad, her- a, bad, a bad idea. Unfortunately, the world in which these people lived, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, the schools that funneled this were Greek. And, and the Greek philosophy thinking permeated the second century. And it was beginning to creep into the first century. There's indications that Paul even battled this a little bit in a couple of his epistles. It wasn't it wasn't as it wasn't as prevalent uh, at that time. Uh, but uh, but that's the picture here. So this is the the major heretical um, issue that that revolved around the church, and it had severely weakened the church. Is what it ha- is what it happened. First John one, 
It has the verbs, the verbs heard and seen, which are in the perfect tense. And what that means is, and then it has the word, it has the the words looked upon and handled. They're in the aorist tense, and this change this change means in the perfect tense means that they actually heard and saw Jesus, and they not only looked upon him, but they actually touched his physical body. This is what they're saying. Uh, this is what they're saying here. Uh, it's, it's saying the chain shows that John saw and heard the incarnate Christ, and they looked upon and actually touched him. That's, that's what those verbs indicate here. He's saying he was who he said he was. He was actually man, and he was God. That's that's the idea here uh, that that John is that John is is pushing with with this this with these opening words. The readers of John' letter were not only suffering under the false teaching, but they had other issues that had to be addressed. It, it would seem from five through ten there was a poor uh, spiritual condition among the members. Uh, there was a number of them who were caught up, who appeared to be have caught up in some form of form of sin. Uh, there was a lack of of love uh, for fellow believers, uh, as indicated in chapter two, six through six through eleven, and four seven through twenty one. The, the 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 result of those kinds of conditions, if you're if you're uh, caught up in sin and you really don't like fellow Christians, uh, and really what happens there is there is what happened, what uh, 5, 13 through 21 talks about, there's a lack of assurance of salvation. Are we really saved? That becomes the issue. And of course, if you've got Gnostic teaching buzzing around in the background, that also brings that, uh, brings that into face, uh, 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 into your face. Uh, these problems prompted John's purposes in writing, which revolved around the themes, themes as we've already said, of love, obedience, assurance, and faith. Uh, and faith. Incidentally, John makes his book very hard to outline. If I didn't really give you an outline in here, uh, because the outline is kind of what we're going to talk about next. This follows what John is doing. John, unlike Paul, Paul wrote a letter and he, t- he addressed an issue. Here's the issue, whatever it is, lack of love. And he writes a chapter, two chapters, ten chapters on lack of love. And then he goes, okay, obedience is the next thing. Well, he writes a couple of chapters on obedience. And then he goes to fellowship and he writes a couple of chapters on fellowship or maybe a whole book on it if it happens to be Philippians. Uh, but uh, uh, but nevertheless, he took precept upon precept and he dealt with them to the end. John doesn't do that. John takes it one idea and he picks it up here in chapter one and he talks about it a little bit. And at the same time, he picks up another idea and he talks about it for a little bit. And then he talks about another idea for a little bit. Maybe he skips one or two of them, but he three or four ideas in each chapter that he expands upon just a little bit. The next chapter, he picks them up again and he tightens them. The next chapter, he picks them up again and tightens them even more. And the next chapter, the same thing. In the fifth chapter, he brings it all to a conclusion. So basically what we conclude is he wrote in a spiral, an ever tightening spiral. His themes, they do this. They just tighten up until he comes to a conclusion. Makes the book really hard to outline. It makes it really hard to outline. I wrote an outline on it once, but it's not a very good one. Well, I got a B on it, but anyway. (sighs) 
Anyway, it's it's difficult to outline. Uh, it's 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 written in a spiral form is the idea here. But but he but he gives his purposes. Here's what the book is about. Here's what he's addressing. Here's what he wants these believers to come to grips with. And and the four most prominent ones, as we said before, are are begun with the words, "I'm writing these things to you." In verse one through four, so that your joy may be, so that our joy may be. Be made complete. In other words, his purpose was that you would come to the fullness of your sanctification, that he could have joy in that church. Uh, second one is in chapter two, verse two, so that you may not sin. That to 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 bring them to that point that they recognize the sin in their lives and clean it out. That's 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 the idea there. The third the third one is in chapter two, also verse twenty six, uh, about those who are trying to deceive you, that you would be on guard, that you would understand when you're hearing heresy, and you would draw away from it. That's one of your biggest jobs, isn't it? Protecting us from heretics. That's probably why he's in here to make sure you're not hearing one. But anyway, anyway, uh, but anyway, at any rate, (laughs) sorry. I'm writing, I'm writing you these things so that you will believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may have, know that you have eternal life. There it is. Ultimately, that you would know Jesus Christ and have etern- and know that you have eternal life. Incidentally, that's in present tense, and it means you currently possess it right now if you're a believer. Uh, you know, I don't always feel about it that way about it as this old body crumbles, but the fact of the matter is, if you're a believer, you're eternal. You're just going to change. You're just going to change residence. That that's that's all you're going to do. You're just going to change residence. You're eternal. God uh, left Palestine in the late 60s. This is the time that the Jews had started their revolt against Rome, which would culminate in the crushing of Jerusalem by Titus and Epiphanes in in, uh, uh, 70 AD, when he utterly will destroy Jerusalem, kill millions of Jews, uh, take the temple down brick by brick and burn it. they took it down tip by step by step because after they burned it, they discovered it was full of gold, <laughs> and so they took the bricks all apart to get the gold. Uh, but but nevertheless, nevertheless, um, that's when he left. He settled in Ephesus of Asia Minor. Uh, we can conclude from that that the congregations were not primarily Jewish. Uh, they were probably more Gentile, which answers the question because there's there's very little Old Testament in this book. Uh, this is not like Hebrews that is just Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament. It's not like Peter who fil- filtered his books with Old Testament. It's not like Paul who filtered his books with Old Testament. There's very little Old Testament in here. In fact, the only Old Testament in this book... Uh, is there is a reference in in one eight to Psalms twenty uh, twenty verse nine, and in three five there's a reference to Isaiah fifty three verse four, and then there is a reference to Cain in in uh, three twelve. There's those are the only three Old Testament references in the whole book, which is why we conclude that it was primarily written to Gentiles because Gentiles didn't know the Old Testament. Uh, the Gnostic influence which held that they had a higher level of knowledge, appears to have driven some away 
uh, away from John's teaching, and they were pressuring others to join them, 219. Uh, John is encouraging them to hold fast to the truth. That's, that's what he's doing here, uh, that they were disrupting uh, the assembly. Uh, the... <clears throat> The epistle was written to give uh, the certainty of faith and the possession of eternal life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name name of the Son of God so that you may have eternal life. If a person wonders whether he is really saved, he should carefully read and ask himself these questions. These came from Dr. Gromacki in his uh, New Testament uh, New Testament survey. He says, ask yourself these questions. He says, have I experienced spiritual fellowship with God and other believers? One through one through three. Am I sensitive to sin? Chapter one, verses five through eight. Have I experienced forgiveness, cleansing and restoration after confession? Uh, One nine. Am I keeping his commandments? Two, three and three and five. Am I doing the will of God? Two seventeen. Am I doing righteousness? 219. Am I looking forward to the coming of Christ? Uh, 3, 1, uh, 3 1 through 3. I think uh, Pastor Steve mentioned that a couple of weeks ago in his sermon. That's, if, you're, if you're solidly in the faith, you're looking forward to the coming of Christ. That's, that's, that's where you should be. If you're kind of filtering around with sin, you're probably not real anxious for him to come yet. Uh, give me a little more time. That's, that's what this means. That's what this is saying. So are you looking forward to the coming of Christ? Am I, doing, uh, am I no longer marked by habitual sin? And this is important. It's habitual sin. It doesn't, he's not saying, do I have no sin in my life? Because John is flat out going to say, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. <laughs> that's what John is going to say. And then he goes on to say how it's to be handled. Uh, but, but nevertheless, the point here is talking about habitual sin. Is that, that your, does that mark your lifestyle? Uh, and he says, do I love the brethren? 3, 1 through 4. Uh, 3, uh, excuse me, 3, 14. Do, do I have love for the brethren? That's an important aspect. Uh, you know, um, Pastor Steve did a message here a while back on what can take a, take a church apart. Uh, that's a big one right there. Brothers not getting along. And, yeah, yeah, it doesn't count the women. No. They feed it into their husband's ear and then they do the dirty work. That's what happened. But anyway, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, nevertheless, uh, do I have love for the brethren? Uh, do I care for my fellow believers? Uh, you know, you want to tear a church apart? Get a, get a, some believers fighting in a church. I had a good friend when I was in seminary. Well, after seminary. Uh, in fact, I was part of his ordination council. But he, uh, uh, he, he was pastoring a little church. Uh, and uh, it was a little country church. And uh, uh, he had he put his head down, you know, and was trying to do all the things you're supposed to do, first pastorate, do all the things you're supposed to do. And, and uh, two families within the church got in a fight. Incidentally, they're the two biggest giving families in the church. And they got in a fight with each other. And uh, he tried to tried to mediate, which basically got him ate up by both of them. Uh, but uh, but uh, uh, they uh, they wouldn't reconcile. 
they just refused to reconcile. And he tried to go through all the steps and do all the things. And what it did is, that church doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. It's just gone. You know, love for the brethren. Uh, do we handle things the way the Bible says they should be handled? That's what John is going to point out here. Uh, that's important. He says, am I free from moral guilt? Chapter 3, verse 21. Have I experienced answered prayer? Chapter 3, verse 22. Do I have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit? Chapter 3, verse 24. Have I heard the word of God and the message of men? Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. How do you react when you sit under good biblical teaching? How do you react when you listen in the morning sermon? How does it affect you? I, I'm, of the, I'm of the belief that if you sit in that auditorium week after week and you don't, you don't get hit consistently, one of two things is wrong. Either the pastor is not teaching the Word of God or you're not, or you're not listening to the Holy Spirit. Those, those, those things it just can't be. And I've sat under Pastor Steve long enough to know you're hearing the Word of God. So it should convict you. It should always be convicting. Uh, and you should feel it. It should hit you somewhere. I know it does me. So I guess I, I need that one. <laughs> but at any rate, hopefully you do too. He uh, said, do I love God? Chapter 4, verse 19. Do I believe Jesus is the Christ? That's important out of this book because a lot of them didn't. Chapter 5, verse 1. And do I believe God's record? Do I believe this is the record God has given me, the Holy Bible? Do I believe that that is His Word? And that's chapter 5, verses uh, uh, 10 through 11. Uh, Affirmative answers to these questions should bring an inward Assurance that one is really a regenerate child of God. And that's one of John's, that's the final purpose that he brought to this. That you would know you're saved. You would know you have eternal life. You would know you're a child of the kingdom. All of those, all of those truths throughout the New Testament about believers are true of you. That you would know that. And he says it in the present tense, which means you currently possess eternal life. That's what he says. Any comments or questions this morning? No question, John. Yeah. So on the um, <clears throat> on the page on the section where you were indicating that there are um, words and phrases that John used that aren't anywhere else. On the the first one, I'm having trouble matching those two. I wonder if I don't if there might be a typo or something. Probably, probably because some of them. It's probably translation differences. Okay. Because I, I didn't take them out of the uh, out of here. Okay. They're, they're uh, out of another translation. But if we go back and take the Greek words apart, that's what it says. Okay. Thank you. Anything else? Let's let's close. Father God, we thank you this morning as we as we uh, begin our study in the book of First John. And Father, may we be diligent to hear what uh, what the, your spirit says to us through John in these in in this text that the, that the text would be alive to us uh, that it would it would do its work of dividing between uh, that which is true and that which is untrue uh, that it would it would clean up our lives uh, that it would uh, it would strengthen our fellowship it would 
bolster our love for our God and that would bring full assurance of who we are in Christ Jesus our Lord that we would glorify you in everything that we do and we ask now Father as we as we dismiss from this room and we go into the main auditorium in our time of corporate worship with the whole body uh, Lord that it would be just that it would be a time of worship to our God and we would thank you for the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus Amen.